It's 4 p.m. Saturday afternoon. Welcome to the Lee Smith Show. I'm Lee Smith, and um, we have a really spectacular, <laughs> fascinating show today. Um, our, our, our guest uh, is a gentleman named Mike Benz, who worked in the U.S. State Department, U.S. Department of State, where he was in charge of the big tech portfolio. And um, Mike is now running an organization. I, I hope I have this correctly, Mike. I, I, I see you there. The Foundation for Freedom Online. Is that correct? Well, that's correct, Lee. Thanks a lot for having oh, me. So, man, what a pleasure. What a thrill it is. And I want to thank our audience for being here. Um, and uh, I, I, I hope some of you will alert your friends because a lot of the stuff that people that we see people speculating on social media or in the press, Mike has um, Mike knows from firsthand knowledge what's going on. And I remember when we were first speaking, um, the way he put it was the way he started. I believe his explanation of the current state of affairs is, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to need a bigger boat. Course, <laughs> uh, quoting, <laughs> quoting the famous line from Jaws, and and what Mike was getting at. Um, is the idea of what is going on on social media. Who is calling the shots on social media? To what extent are we looking at the tech people? And to what extent are we looking at people behind the scenes, um, both political operatives and, um, and um, American and other Western intelligence agencies? So without much further ado, Mike Benz, as you will find out, is an amazing and riveting speaker. And I'm only uh, I'm going to speak as little as possible because I love hearing Mike talk. And I know all of you will be, too. You'll be spellbound with this presentation. And um, and here we go. Mike, thank you very much for being here today. So, yeah. So if we can start with that, the way that you and I first started talking, when you say we need a bigger when you say we need a bigger boat, what do you mean? What's going on? What what have we been looking at the last several years and what and why are why is our perception of such things on social media and even the press misguided. Sure. So I'll try to keep this casual and conversational just uh, right. it'll be, yeah. it'll, 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 it'll be nice that way. Um, yeah. Uh, and again, thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, I man, look it's at a huge this, pleasure. Yeah. yeah, sure. So, so I look at this through the lens of diplomacy. I think that's the easiest way to capture all of the different elements of understanding social media censorship. Um, and, looking at it through the global lens, through the domestic lens, and through all of the different levers of society that become instrumentalized as essentially instruments of statecraft in this in this issue. Um, you know, it was, I think what's happened over the past few years cannot really be overstated in terms of its consequences for not just how America sees itself domestically, mm -hmm. but our foreign policy, uh, mm -hmm. the decisions that were made uh, by the stakeholders that I'll review over the course of this this yeah. discussion I'm, here. I'm I'm, I'm going to ask you periodically, and I, I hate to interrupt, but just so you know, just I, I mean, you know, just so we know exactly what you mean as we're coming through, because there's some unfamiliar or unfamiliar to me anyway. My uh, our, our listeners, I'm sure, are much better informed than I am, but. I, I might just step in from moment to moment and go like, yeah, what do you mean with, with a phrase like with stakeholders? Sure. So stakeholders in this context, I mean all of the different um, vested interests in a particular issue. So 
you know, it's common when you're trying to build consensus on an issue, on a decision that has, you know, global or significant impact to have a sort of multi-stakeholder analysis where you have, say, governments, uh, for-profit corporations, non-profit entities and foundations, NGOs, activist groups, uh, civil society groups, uh, the, uh, ac- uh, you know, uh, the academic community and universities, uh, political actors and regulators, all of these, uh, you know, I use the word stakeholders, but essentially all of these elements that comprise a society uh, have different roles to play in how practices are adopted in on the mm. censorship issue and mm. how they can be mobilized to create a whole of society response on something. So um, just right before we uh, hopped on, I, I just sketched mm. out a little bit of a, a blueprint that I think might be useful okay. for, for understanding That's, this. That sounds because great. The, the, main, the main point that I want to drive home is that uh, America's national narrative on what's actually driving censorship is, is m- largely inaccurate and needs a lot of catching up to do uh, in terms of, of what's driving. It's very easy for people to look at figures like Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey until recently we find out, um, uh, you know, Sergey Brin and Larry Page to look at the people who run the technology companies themselves and say, well, that is what's behind censorship because mm-hmm. the act of censorship occurs, you know, at, at that stage in the funnel. Uh, but what is not seen are the tremendous amount of, uh, of forces, you know, the elements in a whole society mobilization that are pushing down on the tech companies to compel them to make the decisions they do that have over the course of years changed the personnel, have changed the actual divisions within the tech companies that have essentially used strong arm tactics to uh, to force the censorship decision-making process to actually control it in many ways uh, to where a lot of people, you know, they, they think they're up against someone like Jack Dorsey when they want to change Twitter. And it's only when, you know, Elon Musk tries to buy it that a lot of people hmm. begin to get clued into these much larger forces around it. So hmm. I'm going to focus, I think, today on, on you know, on what, what's essentially the nexus, as I see, driving it. Um, mm-hmm. And and how all the different sort of stakeholders around that fit into the into the story. So I just made a, a right, few great. points here that I'll just I'll just sort of rattle off, and then I'll I'll get more conversational. Okay. Um, all right. No, this and, this is great. And, Thanks so much, Mike. Yeah. And some of these topics, I should just say up front, is one last bit of prefacing, uh, are a bit difficult for some people to. Uh, they're not really used to thinking in these terms because they're so used to looking at this issue in terms of domest- its domestic policy. They think of what's happening on in U.S. tech huh. companies as being a domestic issue. Um, you know, I I'll just say up front, I'm I'm in the process of turning this into into a book, and chapter one of the book is hmm. is called "There's No Such Thing as Domestic Policy." And huh. the reason the reason huh. I make that All chapter right. one is because <laughs> is because every country's domestic policy is another country's foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what you yeah, start to right. see, what you start to see with the censorship issue, and when we get into the origins of how this all happened, how it was mobilized, how it was incrementalized, 
you know, who the forces were behind it, how the financial mm. incentives and the political incentives and all those aligned. Uh, this is a story that's, that is truly transatlantic. It is, mm. uh, it is not just a story of what happened in the United States. Uh, it's a story of many other stakeholders, foreign policy as well. And as people are learning <laughs> right now, as we are in the midst of over 8% inflation and mm. no baby formula, yet $40 billion worth of you know, aid to Ukraine being right. know, rubber, rubber stamped with, with haste, uh, yeah. I think a lot of people are only beginning who are not, don't really have a, a diplomacy background, aren't really used to looking at the foreign policy world. It's very easy for people who come from the sort of MAGA America first perspective to just look at America and not, you, you sort of miss what in, in my opinion is a, is a, you know, essentially dwarfs the domestic side of Washington, which is, you know, the, the foreign policy blob as Ben Rhodes mm you know, the Obama's uh, deputy national security advisor described it. The, right. the foreign policy blob absolutely dwarfs the domestic policy hmm. blob to the point where, you know, I think it's it's functionally inconsequential. And, and the, the only real way to get domestic <laughs> policy achieved hmm. is if you actually act in, in concert with what's happening at hmm. the, you know, at, at uh, you know, at the sort of uh, alliance level. Is that because, I mean, is it so much larger? Because, look, I mean, one of the things that's I think would come as a surprise to lots of people about Washington is um, the number of foreign actors who are there. I mean, and, 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 and in a way, Washington was set up precisely for foreign countries to come and petition the world's uh, greatest power for assistance. So is that why you say that foreign policy is so much larger? Because it's not just people vying for for um for position in the domestic arena but you have yeah you have foreign powers coming in as well it started that way but now mm. it's much much bigger so mm. um, <laughs> let's just okay. give one one example sure right the the budget of the department of defense has a larger budget than every single other federal department combined okay mm. just one department right you've got you got your Department of Interior, you've got housing and urban development, you've got labor, you've got HHS, that, you know, just DOD alone, more than every yeah. other department combined. Hmm. And then you've got, well, I'll, I'll focus for, for these purposes on diplomacy, defense, and intelligence, hmm. because these three sort of vectors of American foreign policy uh, have, they, they have, they have multiple functions that play into the, into the censorship story. In particular, mm. that's really where our foreign policy locus is nested. Mm. It's also, uh, uh, it's also where our national security state is vested. Mm -hmm. When, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, so national security has this, it, uh, it, it's very common, you know, to hear the word democracy thrown around a million miles a minute in Washington right. these days. It's uh, yes, it's almost like a spell word that casts yes, over you right. and is used as a sort of right. You know, it's a it's a, it's a catch word, word. Right. right? Right. Right. Meant to shut everyone up. If if you if you challenge what I have to say, you're against our democracy. You're you're pro Putin. Right. 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 So national security 
has an interesting relationship with our concept of democracy in the sense that Hmm. everyone understands that martial law is something that should only happen in, you know, uh, (laughs) emergency circumstances because it has a tendency because it overrides the democratic process. You know, you understand in the context of, say, a war that certain civil liberties are the first casualties of of that war because of the need to uh, <laughs> to essentially instrumentalize all the elements of a society around a unified, cohesive, uh, you know, d- defense posture against a foreign attack. Right. This is something that you know dates back to <laughs> you know <laughs> time immemorial. Essentially, this you know the the sort of trade off be- between a sort of martial law structure and you know a sort of the the democratic ones and our national security state uh, is is not exactly a very democratic mm, uh, 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 constellation of entities. Right. You know, if you think about how, for example, you know the military is run. I mean, it's a very mm-hmm. regiment. You know, this is not the yeah. way people think of traditional free market capitalist <laughs> institutions. Mm-hmm. When right. when a national security crisis or justification overrides a traditional sort of, you know, liberal rules-based order democratic decision, it's usually Mm. contextualized as being, well, this must be an emergency type situation. But we make, you know, these infringements on civil liberties happen when there is a, you know, when, when something is deemed to threaten security. And, and I bring this up up front, maybe this, this uh, preface is taking too long, um, mm. to, but to say that uh, free speech on the internet uh, after, the, after the events of 2016 became increasingly, perce- actually now dates back before that, and I'll get to this, became viewed as a security issue, as a national security issue for the U.S., as a speech, security issue okay, for NATO. Just, speech on the internet did. Became yes. considered yes. okay. Yes, and so we'll, we'll, no, we'll, we'll get to we'll, okay. Yes, um, sorry, I'll, I'll let you let you leave there. No, no, I, I was just going to ask. I mean, t- twenty sixteen seems like an important date to start. Um, I mean, that's that's the uh, election. What's the twenty sixteen uh, presidential campaign? It's it's Brexit. It's Donald Trump becoming president. Is this the the constellation of? Um, of uh, important dates that you're referring to, or, or what are the things that are going on in 2016 that are important? Yeah, so um, so the the two major events were the were the the Brexit referendum in June 2016, and then mm-hmm. the election of of Donald Trump in um, mm. uh, you know in in November of 2016. And uh, you know, I I, <laughs> I think the easiest way to sort of uh, maybe give this discussion some direction is I was going to, uh, you know, a lot of people are talking about the concept of regime change currently with what's happening in Russia and Ukraine and off the heels of, you know, uh, what was happening in Belarus and in 2020. And um, I had some themes that I just sketched out right before our discussion that Mm -hmm. uh, I think might sort of, maybe what I'll do is I'll just kind of rattle these off and then I'll get into the chronology. And then I think, The chronology will make sense in light of in light of some of these points. Okay. So the three main the three main points that I think are useful to get across today are that censorship is primarily driven by regime change organizations pointing their mm. capacities inward. 
Wow. The regime <laughs> change network. Okay. The regime change network mm. is primarily a long-standing alliance of U.S., U.K., and NATO stakeholders, primarily coordinated by diplomacy, defense, and intelligence sectors. The apparatus is not supposed to operate domestically, but they they changed the terms of engagement after the twin events of 2016, being Brexit and the election of Donald Trump. Uh, the third is that censorship is driven by a wow, whole. Okay. Of, the third is that censorship is driven by a whole of society mobilization, mm. uh, and I'll get into that concept. The only way to stop and reverse it, a whole of society mobilization, uh, is to have one in the equal and opposite direction. This is a network mm. attack, and it requires a network defense. If you just look at things through the lens of, say, the tech companies, not realizing that they are, you know, the tip of a vastly greater iceberg, you are going to be thwarted at every turn. Hmm. And not only that, you will not even understand the attacks on you as they happen. They will come from such weird and strange angles, you won't even begin to imagine them. You know, I gave an example in a recent op-ed that I did of Mark Zuckerberg giving a speech in San Jose in 2019 uh, saying that he had thought the censorship uh, pendulum was swinging too far mm. and that he wasn't comfortable with it anymore. This is 2019. Yeah. Uh, and then he gets hit with an advertiser boycott for not censoring aggressively enough. Facebook loses $60 billion in two days, and Zuckerberg is forced to bend the knee and wow. implement a whole new ar array of content moderation procedures, as well as changing their entire personnel, staff, and divisions. Mm. You, these... These civil society encirclement tactics uh, seem to hit people who care about the free speech issue like bolts from the blue because they don't know what they're up against. And they don't understand how networks are formed in order to drive a whole of society response on, the, on this issue. And the reason that I stress the role of diplomacy here is because the role of a diplomat you know, a lot of people think of diplomats as being these sort of nebbish, bookish, sort of, you know, nerdy type characters, you know, wearing, wearing glasses and very, uh, you know, very composed and sort of boring yeah. in a bit of a way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the, the diplomat represents the entire constellation of stakeholders around him. The diplomat represents... Hmm what the Department of Defense is doing. The diplomat represents what the intelligence services are doing. The diplomat represents what financial services firms and what for-profit corporations and what the foundations and the universities and the, and the sort of onboarded NGO axis of activists and, and you know, sort of on the, on the ground, on the, on the streets type, type uh, forces are doing. The, the diplomat represents all of those and and so when you're so uh, in the story that I'll tell in the chronology section of this, of, of how this was essentially organized mm -hmm. by a network of former State Department officials who uh, from you know, predominantly from the Hillary Clinton and, and John Kerry State Departments, but with mm -hmm. assists from and I should note, this is a very bipartisan issue. You know, mm -hmm. it's very easy for Republicans to blame Democrats and for, right. you know, for Democrats to look back at historically what a lot of, you know, traditional Republicans have, have done on this issue. And it's very easy yeah. to get lost in finger pointing. This is not a partisan issue. Uh, you know, this is a universal human rights issue. And what what you see is the apparatus 
that was created initially uh, to advance the cause of internet freedom hmm. became instrumentalized to drive internet censorship. And I'll, I'll, huh. I'll get to there. So there's some, some supporting points that I just quickly yeah. bullet pointed out a little bit before, okay. uh, before we spoke that I hope to get to touch on however briefly in, in the time that we have. So sure. And these are just some concepts to understand. So uh, one is understanding the concept, the concept of instruments of statecraft and how mm -hmm. different elements of society can become instrumentalized in that regard. Understanding conventional war versus unconventional war, that is the change in posture from our diplomacy, defense, and intelligence services after World War II, from, uh, from essentially conducting uh, you know, what, what were once either kinetic or sort of on the threshold of, of kinetic type uh, support for our foreign policy to, towards mm -hmm. changing towards a posture of uh, simply changing governments instead. That is, instead of, you know, instead of uh, having, toppling a military that is being controlled by a government, if you have chronic permanent structures uh, within a target country's civil society that can mm -hmm. change the government, then you don't need to take on their military at all. If you change yeah. the government, you, you essentially you know, can you you sidestep the military altogether? In fact, it can actually be instrumentalized in your right. favor. So, an entire you know, I can get into the history of that from well. You know, I, yeah, I'm I'm I'm, sure. I'm curious because like I I think 2016 is an interesting date, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of what you're what you're saying might might be it might be. Um, we'll get specific. Might, yep. Yeah, we get specific and then come back and talk about some right. of the. Um, you know, talk about some of the details in there. So we can talk right. about Brexit and the 2016 election a bit, if, if that's right. okay with you. Yeah, no, totally. Okay. Well, I think actually the most useful thing is to start the 2016 story in 2014. Okay. Um, in, in 2014, when the, you know, after the events in, you know, in the Maidan Square happened, uh, Okay, we're, 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 get, ta get, we're, get ta that, but we're talking about Ukraine. We're talking about Kiev. You're right. Right, right, uh -huh. right. Uh, and, and Crimea had a, a, a referendum where, you know, Crimea was essentially, essentially held a vote to be a part of Russia. This was considered the greatest foreign policy hmm. defeat and disaster for the entire Obama presidency and stretching back a fair amount of time before that. Uh, hmm. it, it created a crisis within the foreign policy establishment of how did this happen? How is it that, you know, that that Crimea fell the way it did? How is it that even after five billion dollars of pro-democracy mm. programs were pumped into Ukraine, that it still was not able to penetrate, you know, the uh, uh, the east the eastern portion of it, and uh, and what what until 2014 had been seen as an unambiguous 100 percent. Uh, you know, perfect asset for our, we'll call it national, you know, our sort of foreign policy uh, blob. I'll, I'll use that sort of term, but, but I'll say that benignly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Right. Just is what it is. But for, you know, that, that was, uh, that the internet had been up until that point, a, you know, a, a 100% good. That is, it mm -hmm. had been always worked in, in their interest in terms of being able to promote democracy movements, in terms of being uh -huh. able to, you know, drive 
hold society responses in target countries all over the world. Uh, in 2014, there was a there was a feeling that because of the failure of uh, traditional media outlets that were being used to try to shape the hearts and minds of people in Ukraine, that that nevertheless there was still a you know a compelling you know vote uh, for Crimea to uh, to you know to accede to to Russia that more had to be done in the information space and a new doctrine was developed called hybrid warfare which is which initially ah, okay. was, was called the Gerasimov doctrine named after mm -hmm. Valery Gerasimov he was a Russian general and essentially in 2014 uh, our national security establishment uh, got word of a couple of paragraphs from a speech that Valery Gerasimov this Russian general had uh, had made and said where he had basically described, you know, war through uh, social media, through information operations, through, um, you know, through regime change. And uh, this was deemed to be the new way Russia was fighting wars. That is, it was no longer relying on its, you know, totally, you know, totally kinetic capacities that now you know, they were taking to Facebook and they were taking to Twitter and they were taking to YouTube and they were using RT and they were using Sputnik and hybrid war is now hitting America. And mm. my God, what are we going to do about it? <laughs> right. Now, what's funny is the professor who actually termed uh, the, the, the name Gerasimov doctrine ended up walking it back a mm. couple of years later because he had what, what Valerie Gerasimov was referring to was the way the United States wages war at the subkinetic right. level through regime change operations. Right. So he was not actually, so there's actually, if you, I think it's in foreign policy or foreign affairs, you can mm. actually look up this article where I believe it's Mark Galliotti actually walks this back. But by this point, it had already saturated the Pentagon, uh, the UK foreign office and, and, right. and NATO itself. You can go back and you so, can look at NATO's uh, YouTube channel. So they're, so, they're using so a, a Russian... <laughs> They're using a Russian general. They're attributing well, they, to him what they're what they're doing, right? They're attributing to well, him the doctrine not, when he was actually just describing what they were doing. Right. He was just describing, you know, yeah. the Arab Spring. <laughs> right. I mean, it's funny that they it's funny that they lacked they lacked such self consciousness that or or such self awareness that they were unable to identify. Huh. This sounds an awful lot like how we wage operations. Well, I think that's a very yeah. charitable extension yeah. that you made there. I'm not so I'm not so convinced that uh, it was ignorance right. that drove it. But suffice it to say that this doctrine of hybrid warfare was totally uh, revolutionary and revitalizing for the way the national security establishment understood its relationship with the democratic principles of free speech. That is, now it became now Twitter became a theater of war. Now Facebook became a theater of war. Now ah, okay. the distinction between war and peace itself began to dissolve. And again, this is 2014. Mm. So this is about, huh. you know, two, two and a half years before the 2016 election. Right. So I want people to understand that these forces were already in place. And the events that played out in 2016 were essentially the worst nightmare. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Just just very quickly before we get to 2016, just want to make sure we're clear. What do you mean when you say that it was understood that social media, Twitter, Facebook, 
were now understood to be arenas of war. What was happening on these different platforms uh, that um, that U.S. officials, for instance, were using them as platforms to conduct operations against adversaries on on behalf of uh, allies or or uh, clients. What 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 was going on? Are you talking about from the U.S. side or from the Russian yes, side? yeah, no, from the U.S. side. Like you're saying that right. this is that 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 it was perceived to be you know. Uh, uh, a field of battle. So how, what, what was go, what was going on? I mean, and, and you don't have to go into too much detail, but just uh, an example of say an operation that was furthering the interest of the, of the national U S national security establishment. Sure. So I think you and I, and uh, you know, had discussed just, uh, you know, separately how, how the U S state department and national security apparatus was introduced mm. to the concept of digital diplomacy. Right. That is, using Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and right. and all the various platforms and blogs and whatnot to conduct mm. statecraft. And this dates back to about 2006, 2007, mm. when, um, you know, and again, I'll, I'll be light on the details, but essentially um, uh, there was a figure named Jared Cohen, who mm. uh, was a Condoleezza Rice pick for the Office mm. of Policy Plan, pardon, uh, for the Office of Policy Planning. Mm-hmm. Um, he was actually kept over during the change from the Obama administration to uh, that is he was kept over to working in Hillary Clinton's State Department. Mm. He came up with a brilliant idea that instead of conducting, uh, well, you know, it, you could call them, you know, regimes change, you know, uh, organizations, or you could call them mm. pro-democracy groups, and right. depending so, on, right. you know, so the, you know, the, the I wish that you didn't have to pick uh, a way to articulate it because one sounds like a slur and the other sounds like, you <laughs> right. know, like, uh, like freedom, you know, like, like a compliment. Yeah, sure. right. But the fact is, is that threshold decision hmm. does a lot of work in terms of understanding whether this is democratic or not. Yeah. You know, huh. if this is a, if it's for regime change, then you're, then, you know, what, what happens when this happens to a, a uh, to a duly elected government? Right. You know, the one where there there are no issues about election fraud and they do have right. popular support. Well, yeah. like, that, like, you know, like, like we saw here in the United States. Right. Uh, right. And I hope we have time to get to that. But but essentially, um, the, the point that I'm driving at is that there was a revolution hmm. that started in the in the late Bush hmm. W. Bush years and that and that became the cause celebra of the Obama administration's foreign policy jewel. Uh, when Jared Cohen, in tandem with uh, you know with with the Hillary Clinton State Department, uh, converted the traditional uh, democracy promotion capacities from being IRL, from hmm. that is being conducted out of embassies and consulates hmm. and CIA station houses and safe houses, uh, to being able to actually be mobilized online, entirely hmm. online. That is, you know, you could, so, and this allowed scale that was not possible before. Hmm. That is, that you don't need to rely on, you know, the incredible friction of the person to person meetings and whatnot that you can actually just organize entire movements under a common banner, give, you know, have them meet in Facebook groups, have them, you know, congregate around a Twitter hashtag, uh, around 
certain YouTube influencers now is becoming mm. even more, you know, something that's right. become increasingly popular. And, and it's, you don't need to do the, the black duffel bag, you know, you know face <laughs> to face right. so much, you know, yeah. where, it, where you have, you know, uh, you know, an ambassador or, uh, or, or right. a deputy meet with a movement leader and then, right. They, you, you, know, right. you don't have to get in, in three big black right. sedans taking you, right. right, right. Taking, taking you somewhere in Africa to meet the opposition. Yeah, that's right. Right. So, so when the Arab Spring happened during the Clinton administration, mm-hmm. this was considered the actualization of digital diplomacy, statecraft 2.0. Okay. This, this, this was considered to be uh, a proof of concept of an incredible new pro-democracy slash mm-hmm. regime change, call it what you will, uh, right. apparatus that could be scaled to even greater heights by our foreign policy establishment to basically do away with war forever, do away with conflict. <laughs> if you've got a problem with another country, you know, <laughs> you this just, is now an incredible- You go to, social, you go to social media, right. Now you have to understand it's exactly at this time <laughs> when freedom on the internet became huh. memed as huh. the brightest of American virtues and values, right? It was at this time where you had an incredible amount of money pouring into hmm. pro anonymity tools and software, the Tor right. network, yeah. Inqtel funding signal. Uh, you've got, you know, yeah. you've got, uh, you've, uh, you Wait, have the. In, 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 I'm sorry, well, Inqtel well, funded signal. Well, I shouldn't. I, well, this is. <laughs> uh, uh, you, I'll recommend, you met, I'll recommend, I'll recommend Yasha Levine Surveillance Valley for a deep dive on this on this subject. Okay. I know that there's uh, passionate opinions. I'm not saying. Okay, uh, I'm not even. Uh, I, I'm not saying anything more than that. Suffice to say and that I can, if, can you you just, the, yeah. if you look I, at all, if you look at all the concept of online anonymity yeah. was incredibly important during this time in in the late aughts and the uh, early 2010s, because as foreign countries began to catch on to this, hmm. there was an attempt to use their IP addresses and to, and to use their control over domestic telecommunications right. uh, sweeps to basically uh, suss out domestic dissidents and be able to target them using the same sorts of surveillance techniques that are now used on American citizens. Uh, yeah. At the time, uh, free speech on the internet right. was an incredible, was a, not just inc- incredibly important. It was the, it was a, the driving force for the ability to create robust civil society institutions, robust mm-hmm. street movements, robust support for, you know, supportive political candidates and emerging leaders. Right. Uh, and so the ability to speak freely online was essentially deemed a human right. Any right. country that didn't do so was functionally yes. eligible for sanctions. Right. Uh, and and not only that, a tremendous amount of money and personnel and coordination with the t- technology companies went into promoting uh, on you know, a- anonymity software and tools and training people to use it uh, right. so that they could evade domestic detection so that they can max their IP <laughs> right. addresses so that so they couldn't be censored so that they could be censor proof. Essentially, right. You had, uh, coming into 2014, you had uh, almost a a decade, I mean, really it was about seven or eight years of it being Mm. robust, of just, of of building up internet freedom as being the most American thing in the world Mm. and being a sacred human right 
it, and it became a part of our values-based diplomacy. So I have a concept mm -hmm. just from my time in the State Department that mm -hmm. I call value-based diplomacy versus values-based mm -hmm. diplomacy. And value-based yeah. diplomacy is when you are offering value to another country or your counterpart mm -hmm. in exchange for value. Right. Values-based is when you are uh, using a predicate now, it's not always a predicate. This is where, again, mm -hmm. you come back to pro, is it pro-democracy or is it regime change? Mm -hmm. But where you are conducting unilateral pressure diplomacy on the basis of alleged violations of mm -hmm. a value. That is, uh, so for example, if I want to get country X to, you know, change its, uh, well, I won't get too specific. I think that might not be appropriate for this mm -hmm. context, but, but. You, that is, you can offer value, say, you know, we'll lessen these trade tariffs or we right. will, you know, we'll vote to support you at the UN Security Council. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and and uh, you can have an exchange of value for value huh. or you, right. know, you can conduct unilateral diplomacy on the basis of values. That is, mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, you, uh, we will impose sanctions on you. We will, you know, rally you know, stakeholders to oppose you at the next UN vote or in this multilateral right. form because you have violated some value that we consider to be integral to democracy, you know, right. freedom of speech. I mean, it's in the UN Declaration of Human Rights. It's, right. it's, this is, you know, this is something that, that, that has teeth and is often used right. as a predicate for creating a transnational consensus right. on an issue. You say, oh, they're cracking down on journalists. They're banning right. TV stations. Well, look, I, 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 I want to make sure I want to make sure we get to this transition because this is fascinating when you're talking about, you know, freedom of speech online is one of the highest of American values. It's pro we we convince people to prize this the world over and we sanction you if you cut people off online. So how do we get from there? To, to 2016. So the transition is 2014, the loss of Crimea. And so then what happens? How do we, 2016 with the Brexit referendum and then the yeah. Trump election? Right. And then, right. yes, yeah, so, I mean, you know, I want to make sure right. we hit on that. So it's, it's, sure. This is fascinating how it turns over like this because you're reminding all of us of something, of course, we remember very clearly. And it's shocking now with that context to look in retrospect, right? The idea that this used to be this, right? This is what we were promoting the world over. And now, as it turns out in the United States, no, sorry, you, uh, you, you question the, the value of vaccine mandates. You're out of here. So, yeah. Hey, I'll give sorry. you, I'll, I will turn to 2016 if you'll permit me one thing. Just okay. because I think it's, it's, right. it's, a, it's such a, you know, this would be, an, this would be the world's greatest comedy if it weren't the world's yeah. greatest tragedy. Right. Uh, what, you, what you find is that it's not just the concept, the value itself uh, that did change over. It's the exact same organizations as well. Uh, you will hmm. find that it is organizations like the Open Technology Fund, hmm. you know, they're, you know that, that you know, was for opening up technology that is now being used to promote censorship technologies. It's the Center for Democracy and Technology. It's hmm. access now. It is, you know, uh, I actually, when I was coming, you know, coming up with a name for, for my, my center, Foundation for yeah. Freedom Online, I was, I actually had a, a, a fair amount of reticence at first because I didn't want <laughs> FFO to be mistaken for a traditional pro-censorship organization <laughs> yeah, yeah. because right. all of the NGOs and civil yeah. society groups and USAID grantees who had gotten money in the two aughts and two and 2010s to promote freedom. And that's why freedom is in their name are mm. all now 
you know, uh, have lined up lock, stock and barrel 100 percent on the issue yeah. of the need to censor free speech in order to preserve democracy. So, you know, I use that I sort of talk about in the context of, you know, insurgency versus counterinsurgency. But we, um, in, in June 2016, Brexit happens. Uh, yeah. You know, and. And this is a, this is a good example of uh, how there's no such thing as domestic policy. Yeah, you probably remember as, as vividly as I do what the mood in America was when Brexit mm. happened. Yeah. You know, that this was it was not the earthquake that Donald Trump's election was, but it was a massive event even yeah. in the context of American politics. Sure. You know, it fundamentally, you know, uh, changed our understanding of the European Union, mm-hmm. how permanent, how secure it was, you know, uh, the you know, how Europe, you know, is, uh, you know, interacts with with the U.S., even at the military level through NATO. Uh, it was a major event in U.S. politics, and there were many forces in the U.S. who did not want Brexit to happen. Um, but more importantly, on the other side of the Atlantic, this was a terrifying moment at every conceivable level. Because at the time, now it's it's easy to forget this now because of how history played out mm. in the shadow of these events. But at the time, Brexit, when that happened... That was deemed to be every bit as unlikely as the Trump election was. Right. It, it was a bolt from nowhere. It was it almost the referendum itself almost happened sort of as a meme because yeah. of Nigel Farage basically right. pestering, at, you know, almost like an online Internet troll does his speeches, you know, uh, uh, to uh, Herman Van Rompuy and the European Union and him constantly, uh, you know, sort of challenging entrenched interest to put it to a vote. It was only put to a vote because it thought it was going to fail. Uh, when it when it actually went through, there was a tremendous. It was very close to the line of not even being uh, of a second referendum, and and uh, but, but essentially, when that happened, there were many other forces happening domestically, mm. politically in Europe at the same time. Uh-huh. You had Frexit, which was mm. which is very close to being a reality uh, from mm. France. You had Italy exit. You had Brexit. <laughs> you had a domino akin to the U.S. military and foreign policies excuse for going to war with Vietnam, which was the domino theory. Why are we putting putting, boots on the ground in in Vietnam? Well, it's because Laos and Cambodia and Thailand and the entire, you know, everything's going to fall if we don't stop this. Well, so what what was the what was the domino fear here in Europe? It wasn't communism. What was it? Pop, uh, what, what yes, we populism. referred to as populism. Well, in other words, okay. and that, and, and other words <laughs> the ability of the citizens of democracies to make decisions on their own outside Lee, of the realm of te- techno- technocrats. Yeah. You're going to love this, Lee. I'm going right. to give you one more ism. That, okay. you can, that you can yeah. look up now. Right. And you're not going to find it so okay. much anymore. After 2018, it started getting phased out. But yeah. if you look back at the NATO literature <laughs> yeah. from about 2000, late 2016 into about 2018, you will find an incredible volume of white papers and hmm. hit pieces and attacks using the slur sovereignism. <laughs> I'm not even joking. If you uh, no, no, I've, I, I, right I, now, I, you I believe you. I, I believe you. I don't remember that, though. God, that's fantastic. Yeah, right, right. Well, because this is so. <laughs> yeah. Again, people don't follow. You know, uh, it, it, it's it doesn't make for lurid and vivid reading. You know what's what's happening yeah. in a lot of these 
sort of, you know, wonkish policy right. incubators for the national security establishment. Yeah. But since, uh, you know, that essentially is, you know, drives consensus before it happens. Hmm. I mean, you, you, you will find it if you, if you look for it <laughs> and you will always, always find it in the context of it being used as a slur, as being right. anti-democratic, as yeah. being a proxy for things like fascism. Uh-huh. As being a, as, you know, as they, wow. uh, you know, and because you have to understand from the, from the neoliberal hmm. rules-based order perspective, you've got yeah. two predicates for using yeah. a national security response to stamp uh-huh. something out uh, using sort of the Karl Popper's paradox of, of, of tolerance type thing, right? So you've got fascism on the right and communism mm-hmm. on the left. Right. And these forces are considered to be so anti-democratic, so authoritarian, and so powerful, right. if unchecked, that they can essentially lead to a permanent destruction of democracy itself. Hmm. So, yeah, we may need to be a little anti-democratic for a time just to, just to eradicate those forces and then return to democracy in its more pure sense once that threat has been defeated. This was essentially the justification for the first, wow. you know, uh, for, the, for the, you know, the newly founded CIA's operations in Italy in the 1948 election, right? Mm-hmm. Which was, which is really, you know, what the justification under NSC 10-2 and the whole, you know, the, you know, plausible deniability doctrine, mm. all of that goes back to, you know, what, what was, you know, when, when, when a communist candidate in the first democratic election in Italy happened after World War II, oh. uh, the regime change apparatus went into full gear. And it was, this is, was, you know, began to be used essentially as a blueprint that was used, you know, in 85 countries in 40 years, you know, from the, you know, especially from, you know, Eisenhower on. But, um, but you know, it was deemed to be, uh, it was deemed to be uh, not nice, a sort of department of dirty tricks, but, but sort of necessary, uh, you know, be, become the monster in order to slay the monster. And hope you don't become a monster right. at the end of the day, type thing. And but, in fact, so, this, but let me. Yeah. I, well, I just want to ask about uh, <laughs> sovereignism. So, yeah. sovereignism, uh, the, uh, amazing phrase. Thank you for that. Um, sovereignism is a threat to what the international rules-based order, what we call the international rules-based order, and 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 the Western powers have such a stake in that they need to preserve that against sovereignism. Yes. That's the idea. Okay. Yes. Because right. you have to understand uh, the, the foreign policy establishment that we live in now is the result of, you know, it was called the Washington Consensus and the whole idea that uh, politics uh, stops at the water's edge, you know, yeah. was a common yeah. phrase right. that Americans will disagree on domestic policy, but mm-hmm. we will never disagree on foreign policy. I mean, this was right. basically existed from Truman until Trump. Yeah. Right. Um, and, uh, I should note with with a, with a few notable hiccups along the way that did not hmm. resolve favorably for the Democrat, uh, hmm. uh, for the for the domestic side, uh, which hmm. again is why I say chapter one is there's no such thing as domestic no. policy. But but uh, that, I'll leave that as an aside. So you had essentially this right left alliance mm-hmm. coming out of the Reagan era, where under Reagan, you know, wins forty nine states. In the 1984 election, 49 out of 50 I, states. You can't I, 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 I just want to make sure that we're leaving enough room to get to the 2016 oh, election, too. Sure. No, sure. it's okay. 
there's so much to cover. This is so great, Mike. Thanks. So much. I just want to make sure we get up to the 20. I mean, there's so much has happened since. But I, right. but it seems to me that the way you describe it is that 2016 is kind of the uh, not Annus Mirabilis, but Annus uh, uh, Horribilis. So what happens after Brexit? Now we're coming into now we're coming into July 2016. And um, so right. what? People are terrified after Brexit, right. and they're looking, what if we have the same thing with Trump? So, is that what's going so, through people's minds? So actually, in July of 2016, mm-hmm. the month after the June 2016 Brexit vote, is when NATO uh, was essentially – its its mandate was, am- was amended to be mm-hmm. able to now uh, uh, have the jurisdic- jurisdiction for hybrid war. That mm-hmm. is, you know, since 19 19- – 49, it had only had authority technically for conventional war. And now after, uh, after Brexit, immediately there was a formal man- mandate uh, to be able to now engage in, you know, in uh, defense against hybrid threats and hybrid war. So you immediately had social media identified and, wow. and alternative narratives expressed online hmm. as being a national security threat to NATO right. itself. Can can and you, you and can you tell me so, so the first time we spoke you were saying that they were even identifying memes like oh, Peppy yes, the oh. Frog that that this is one of the things oh. they were doing they were identifying that topic, memes that, topic goes, of, that yeah. topic goes so deep you know I could do a ten hour lecture on that I, 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 just just explain uh, what they just explain please what they did to Peppy the Frog and we'll come well, back and we'll yeah. talk about the memes in in depth some other time but i think that this is fascinating how they well, how they targeted pepe sure. yeah. so so well you can go back in time and look at mm. contemporaneous videos mm. uh with these you know national you know high very 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 senior members of the national security establishment um mm. you know who are being presented with slideshow presentations of phrases and symbols that <laughs> undermine uh you know the the faith in nato or undermine you know, credibility um, of the Western military <laughs> establishment or Western institutions. You know, and there's so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a great presentation and, and, and where this, this is, one four star. Happy is one of them? Yeah. yeah I'm sorry. Well, uh, sure. sure. The, yeah. Like, you know, uh, one, of, one of my favorites is, you know, they're being shown a presentation of Western, uh, sort of Western military generals and yeah. versus Russian military generals. And the Russian yeah. military generals are very masculine, square-jawed, yeah. sort of high testosterone stereotype mm. and the Western generals sort of have that, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I forget if, if, you know, one of them was transgender, but they were all they were, <laughs> they were basically women. Yeah. And, you know, and it was, you know, the, the subtext was obviously, well, you know, who, who do you want, you know, protecting your borders? Who do you want running the middle? And, uh, you know, this, this slide deck was being presented by, you know, I'll, I'll omit names, but essentially, mm. you know, a, 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 a Harvard researcher at this incredibly mm. hoity-toity, you know, conference where where they're you know you're talking about the the world's most important geopolitical events. You know, uh, you know, is is as significant as you can mm. you can get. And, and and in that context, the you know the generals are being shown memes uh, online that have you know that dwarf the virality of the actual conference itself, because these these individuals would always try to promote these national security conferences mm. to try to get their concepts out in the in the public. And one of the sort of funny parts of the story is watching them frustrated that they're not able to generate the sort of organic chatter that uh, 
you know, the mature social, you know, uh, social media had. But, uh, you know, there, there were talks around this time that, that concepts like hate speech were, mm. were a geopolitical threat because what was happening in Europe uh, in 2016 and 2017 is you had a tremendous amount of, of domestic backlash against the migrant crisis at the time. Mm. And the only place that people felt comfortable to politically mobilize you know, uh, against that within the context of the democratic society and, and norms of tolerance at the time. And the, you know, the, the cancel culture that had already been developed around the issue of immigration, uh, you know, obviously there are reasonable opinions on both sides, but you know, this was a very contentious issue in 2016, 2017. And, you know, you can go back to those lectures from, and I can, you know, give you the names of, hmm. of where to look and whatnot. And you will see that Right on, right on par with them talking about the threat of, you know, of another Russian, you know, attack on Ukraine, and right in the hmm. right in the in the context of you know threats about what was happening in the South China Sea, right. were you know was uh, you know at that level it was free speech on the internet because hate speech, for example, was giving rise to certain feelings of ethno nationalism within Europe. Which were giving, which were which were trickling down in, into p- uh, political support for civic nationalism, hmm. and which was translating into an explosion of support for Marine Le Pen's National Front, for Matteo uh. Salvini in Italy, uh. for uh, you know for Nigel Farage and UKIP at, at the time hmm. in the UK, um, to what was happening in the, in the Nordic countries. To I mean, I, hmm. you, what was happening in Greece? You can go down through the yeah. line, and. What was happening at the time is if, if the EU was going to come apart, NATO itself was going to come apart. Ah. You know, the, the entire the, the common market was going to dissolve. And so you had, you know, uh, you had these entrenched financial interests. And then the military security apparatus itself was now threatening to, you know, the, the fabric, which is essentially the enforcer of the rules based right. order, was threatening to come apart. Because if there's no EU, there's, there's going to be no NATO. Right. And. And so now there became a national security predicate for interfering in the domestic mm. politics in Europe after Brexit. Okay. And they and they used a lot of clever techniques to be able to lay the early foundations for for that infrastructure. And then once they became normalized, just like censorship is now normalized, uh, mm. every, it, it became autopilot. You know, and, and you could just use the word democracy. In, instead of talking about it being anti, in, now everything that was anti-democratic became democratic because you had to save. Yeah. You had to be a little bit anti-democratic to save democracy from a lot of anti-democratic. Right. So now all of these things became contextualized ah, within the national right. security establishment. This absurd conceit that we have to protect our democracy by shutting people up and by censoring them. This really, that's re- this is the transitional period right. post Brexit and pre Trump. Right. This so is when ha- the wheels got turning in Europe right. and they got turning and, and you will find this again and again. Europe moves first here. And in part, mm. this is because of a tremendous amount of pressure from, I'll just say, rogue elements of uh, the U.S. ambassador class. The huh. again, not not trying to be I'm not won't uh, I'll try to uh, I, I, what I will say is that there was a concerted coordination between the the losers of the 2016 election hmm. and the losers in the U S and the losers on the Brexit side of the issue in Europe 
to really? come up with a joint plan to have Europe move first and huh. create the normalization of changes within civil society so that the U.S. would would naturally fall into place as adjustments to the global market occurred. And I can wow. I don't know how much you know time. Wait, so, know, wait, so, 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 so here. yeah. So wait, so this was after now the 2016 election. Yes, yes, that after, was a, that was after wow. that. But, huh. uh, but what you had is. You know, Europe began to move because remember, Europe had already been moving in this direction after Crimea. And then when it manifested in the Brexit vote, this was, you know, worst fears confirmed for many in the right. British, you know, uh, military and hmm. financial class. And, and, and what's, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a funny example is, you know, one of the I, I remember several years ago, I was researching an institution called the Institute for Strategic Dialogue and, you know, and how they were you know, basically facilitating a lot of these uh, censorship changes and, and God, driving a tremendous amount of pressure on, it, on uh, it figures an, or, an, an organization with a name like that. Right. right. That's I of know, course right. what it would really right. be doing. Of course. Yeah. And then I, I, yeah. so I, I remember as, as part of my, my diligence, I, I looked at their board of directors and, uh, something like half or slightly more than half were all you know high ranking military officials so i'm thinking what you know this is now this is 2000 you know 17 or so and and you know, this is you know before you had the normalization of censorship to the you know anywhere close to the degree it was in the US but you had these civil society groups using the pretext of democratic norms around freedom of expression and hate speech. And you've got them being directed by the national security establishment and very, very, very senior, you know, levels of it at that, you know, and a great example of this is, you know, the, you look at something like the Atlantic Council's digital forensics research lab, and, you know, you see that it's who's the executive chairman of the Atlantic Council, it's Jim Jones is uh, you know, yeah. a four star. He was the he was Barack yeah. Obama's national right. security advisor. And, you know, he's he's overseeing discussions about how Facebook needs to censor, you know, uh, needs to, you know, the, the next current thing. Right. Um, and you will find this again and again, this interrelationship between defense diplomacy and intelligence mm. on this issue. And and when you look at how the financial services firms got wrapped up into this, how the, you know, how the tech platforms mm. themselves had to change, uh, how the NGOs and how State Department money poured into this space. I mean, a great example of this is, you know, the something called the Global Center for Strategic Engagement. Now it's just called mm. the Global Engagement Center, set up in the State Department um, uh, as basically a as, as, a, as a soft means of the U.S. government hmm. getting back in the business of information warfare. Now, yeah. this was something that we had during the Cold War when we had something called the USIA, the U U.S. Information Agency, right. which was something that a lot of people, you know, it was basically a ministry of truth during the Cold War. Hmm. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of other elements to to that that I'll, you know, to, to that process that I'll, I'll leave aside for purposes of brevity well, here. I've, but I've, I, I, I just I, no, I just want to ask because no, what, what, because we, we've got, we're we're going to come to a close shortly. I mean, I don't want to. I I want to. I want to to talk about this one issue, which is very important, which you just touched on, and um, and that is 
look, so you're saying that to go back to the story, the anecdote you have about Mark Zuckerberg. So what you're saying is that the that not to say that the social media moguls are necessarily great guys, but they really have no choice because the national security establishment is compelling them right. to implement very severe censorship regimes. What's the threat? The threat is they'll be regulated out of existence. The threat is, yeah, what, what, what's, sure. what's the threat? So, so the threats come from all angles here. So you mentioned hmm. one, which is the regulatory threat. And this right. is one of the ironies of, of President Trump's attempt to deal with this issue by talking about Section 230. If you remember when he had a Twitter account, he was typing in all caps, repeal Section 230. And, you know, everyone was, you know, and that, that's right. Meanwhile, you had you had Elizabeth Warren and, and Amy Klobuchar calling for the exact same thing. Right. For for vastly yeah. different reasons. Right. Um, uh, and the what I will describe is the is the predominant. There's there's a lot of tools in the uh, Department of Dirty Tricks here. But I will just say that the predominant <laughs> one is what I call civil society encirclement, mm. which is um, so one thing that labor union organizers do a lot is they create they, they go through an exercise called power mapping. But they look at a target and they look at all of its support structures, you know, who's you know, who are its donors, who are its customers, what right. infrastructure does it rely on? You know, uh, what what key relationships do they have? You know, what principle like and all the different levers that go into hmm. a, you know, a successful enterprise and then creating a crisis if, if compromise is not uh, uh, affected. So, uh, you know, so understand that now, now this, I know that for short on time, you know, to open up a whole new uh, thread is, you know, it might, might not be prudent, but uh, you have to understand that, that, uh, the concept of a private company is something that is 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 really not uh, during the cold war almost every sector in american society uh developed relationships with permanent washington hmm. uh in in ways that i i don't think are uh appreciated not just fully appreciated but even appreciated all i mean even things that you would think are completely obscure, the insurance industry, hmm. you know, uh, uh, you know, the financial services firms, the, the, um, you know, uh, you look at oil and gas and everywhere you look, whatever, you know, whatever sector you, you, you choose to put your, your finger on, you will find that there are now part of this, by the way, is the role of the state department to champion them. Let me just, hmm. maybe this is a good way to discuss right. this in, in my role as a state department diplomat, as part of my portfolio, it was to champion U.S. technology firms abroad. Right. That is, you know, foreign country X is going to pass some law that's going to have, mm -hmm. you know, an adverse impact on U.S. Uh, U.S. tech businesses and therefore mm -hmm. U.S. tech jobs, U.S. you know tech firms, uh, our GDP, our technological dominance, and and is to fight for them. And uh, to be able to use the leverage that we as America have in these negotiations to promote the interests of our champions abroad. Hmm. Now, that's not a deal with no strings attached. Now, hmm. this is not formal. I'm not, by the way, I'm now speaking in my personal capacity here. This hmm. is obviously, um, but you know, there's, uh, if, if you are, 
not in good standing, you do not get the same level of favors as you do as those who are have that sort of ah. revolving door relationship. Interesting. Um, right. And in, now, there's a lot of other angles we talk about this, but again, uh, you know, one, you know, uh, one one good example of this is is to say, take something like USAID. Mm-hmm. And and you know State Department money that is that goes into grants uh, for for you know different different groups. Great, this Elon mm-hmm. Musk letter, the twenty six NGOs. All right, a tremendous volume of those are paid by the U.S. You know, receive U.S. Mm-hmm. government dollars for humanitarian aid, for uh, you know uh, sustainable development. Uh, assistance for pro-democracy efforts, for promoting free speech uh, in target countries around the world. And those are U.S.-backed civil society organizations running a pressure campaign on Elon Musk, threatening mm-hmm. to tank his advertising revenue the same way they did right. to Facebook when they, when they cost Facebook $60 billion and forced, mm-hmm. and forced Mark Zuckerberg to, you know, a, upsize his artificial intelligence, uh, uh, scan and ban censorship techniques. The same thing was done to Google during the adpocalypse and various Mm. other episodes where you can use these levers of civil society to encircle a target to bring it Mm. to its knees. The thing that was most intriguing about Elon Musk is that because he's a triple digit billionaire, you know, at the time Mm. of the announcement, he was worth almost 300 billion. There was sort of a promise that, well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was only a double-digit billionaire. He could be reined in. Potentially, Musk is of a, one of that rarefied mm. class that he might be able to sort of resist it, especially if he takes the company private and yeah. they're no longer subject to that fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder profit. Um, but, you know, I can get into that, that toolkit more if, if you think that's a, a good use of time. Um, but those are just... Mm. You know some examples, and what you'll find is that these are these happen in coordination, right? You know, with state actors almost every time. No, I I, I think that um, we've covered so much ground, and this is really fascinating. And um, we got to have you back soon to go into more because we have to we have to get next from 2016 to the present. We have to get from. <laughs> oh my god. We have we have yeah we have to get from. You know, but I, I, I think what you laid out is really, really significant. And um, again, just the idea that, right, this was the byword, Internet freedom. You have to be able to you have to be able to speak freely on the Internet. If not, we're coming after you. We're, we're going to use every every mm-hmm. instrument uh, in, 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 the, in, in America's uh, foreign service bag of tricks, which will include going after you online. And then how that how that turned around and is now used against American citizens is just a great uh, is just a great story, Mike. So thanks so much. It's really uh, it's it's really been a great pleasure and a lot of fun to speak to you as always. And uh, really, you have to come back. I don't know within the ne- you know soon within the next month or so if you can <laughs> because because all, because also I want you to talk. I, I want you to be able to talk some about the work your foundation is doing and some of the, some of the information you're going to be providing people, which is just great and really important. And again, we need to get from uh, Donald Trump's election up to the present. How did we get here so that many people are looking to Elon Musk as the last best hope to save freedom of speech in the United States of America. So, and, and you're, and you're the one to tell the story. 
So thanks so much again, uh, Mike. Really appreciate it. And thank all of you for listening to uh, The Lee Smith Show. And we'll see you all next Saturday afternoon again at 4 p.m. In the meantime, have a, have a beautiful Sunday. Uh, God bless you all. And um, have a great week. We'll see you then. Mike, thanks so much again. Follow Mike. Mike, uh, I just want to check your, uh, your Twitter handle and your Getter handle so people can follow you. And they know where to get your information as soon as you start, as soon as it's, as soon as it's up more. It's, um, am I right? Yep. FFO underscore uh, or at ffo underscore freedom is that correct yes it's fresh as a baby just had it set up all right uh, very you know, exciting think, uh, and I, and uh, the website is foundationforfreedomonline.com uh it's uh, got a placeholder right now but uh i have a, re- a report coming out uh, hmm. the week after this on the deep history of what actually is behind the DHS Disinformation Governance Board. Oh, it's going to be whoa. it's going to be an absolute barn buster. You're going All right, to have, well, everyone is going to have to read that report when it comes out. We're, we're going to have not going to believe the information in there. We're going to have uh, you back to talk about Nina Jankowitz, everyone's everyone's favorite, everyone's favorite censor. Right. Uh, you will not believe. Yeah. Yeah, so, and that's the, going to be available. The, 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 si- the singing, the singing censor. So we'll have you to talk about that as soon as that's back up. Mike, in the meantime, thanks so much again. God bless you. Have a great weekend. Thank thanks you, everyone. To your audience as well. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Bye.